I want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound Insights TV podcast. This is Kate Kolzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Uh, I'm not really sure. Things are in flux. Yeah? It's it's, it's chaos. Everything's been dismantled. It's <laughs> <Just a> failure. <laughs> uh, I'll get back to you. Okay. To to uh, to be continued, I guess. Um, we have a lot of fun TV talk coming your way this week, guys. We're going to be talking with Dan Heaton from Sound on Sight and Public Transportation Snob at the end of the podcast, looking at Homicide Life on the Street, which was so much fun. Yeah, it was pretty epic. Yeah, we, we, we need to watch more and then, like, report back with even more love in the future at some point. Yeah, I'm going to, at some point, just start. I mean, I'm going to have more time on my hands as of the near future, and I, I may just have to sit down and do that. There was a lot of TV talk this week on Twitter and Facebook and email all, and all of that, but because we're in the throes of Doctor Who month at Sound on Sight, which is basically, uh, there I have a few other contributors, but basically that's Kate writes about Doctor Who every day month right now. Uh, my Twitter feed has pretty much just been Doctor Who. So it's been a lot of fun talking with you guys about the show. And, uh, and if you are not a Doctor Who fan and are following me on Twitter, I'm sorry. It's, but it, it's not going to change for the next several weeks. Uh, I will try to throw some more non-Hoovian uh, tweets out there as well but it's been a lot of fun talking with you guys also we thought we should mention that carl is starting uh is starting up with the good wife as well as uh our buddy les chapel has been as well so it's been really fun to follow your guys' tweets hopefully uh they like the show as much as we do and hopefully they'll be caught up at some point in the next six months i just i'm enjoying you know trying to figure out where they're at based on their tweets and it's been pretty fun yeah, I don't even remember exactly what happens in the first season besides the obvious Alicia and Peter stuff. Well, they keep mentioning various guest stars, and I'm like, oh, yeah, they were on the show, too. It's just sort of like a nice little pleasant memory. Good times. Yes. Lots of fun with, uh, with with The Good Wife right now. We'll talk more about that later in the show. As as I mentioned, of course, it is Doctor Who month at Sound on Sight. It's also Soderbergh month, and there's still plenty of uh, 31 Days of Horror articles kicking around. So lots of fun things going on at soundonsight.org. But let's get into our week in television, and we're going to kick things off, uh, as ever, with the comedies. Wiki Kiss It? Can there really be a whole island for kissing? comedy we have key and peel always sunny the gang makes lethal weapon six bob's burgers seaplane that's with an exclamation point i hope that was excited enough and of course eastbound and down let's kick things off with key and peel it was all halloween and it was wonderful they really really need to do more theme episodes because they've never done it before and this ruled so much and it was also more memorable as a result the there were so many good I, there really weren't any bad sketches 
the when when I, I would say the weakest one, if only for only having one joke, was probably the Walking Dead one. I mean, it was they didn't say it, but it was very clearly a riff on the Walking Dead. And it was what I, what I was really impressed with for that sketch was how they captured the look of the Walking Dead. It had all the desaturated colors and the you know generic action hero doing his thing. <laughs> David Giantoli, yeah, I thought that was a nice little bit of uh, stunt casting. Oh, I there. didn't recognize him. Yep, yeah, that was absolutely. Good. Yeah, it was great, and he he played that perfectly too. That was really really nice, uh, nicely underplayed. I I thought that one was a lot of fun. I liked all of these. Let's see, we had we had the Shining, we had the Continental Breakfast, which was delightful. Oh my god, I love that 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 was probably the longest sketch. And the brilliance of that sketch was even better in the context of the episode because you didn't know why it was there. Mm-hmm. Because you, you keep thinking, okay, this is funny, but why is it in a Halloween episode? <laughs> and then we get the reveal, and it was very, very clever. I think that was closely rivaled by the uh, the Bored Vampires sketch. Oh, that was awesome. With with the one guy who's just like, I just want to get bit and live forever. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Yeah. Can, we, can, we, can you two just get a room? Like I, I have a boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, that, that, <laughs> that was, was all pretty great. That was great. That the, they slightly, slightly botched the last couple of beats, but other than that, it was fine. I mean, yeah, this ruled. Key and Peel are fantastic. I was good with the uh, with the, the the final note of that sketch. The whole thing was was just so much fun. Uh, I'm gonna be thinking of the, the Walking Dead zombies as extras now for weeks when I'm watching that show. Just like what they're doing as soon as they cut, it's 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 a lot of fun. So well done yet again. I think this is the standout of the season for me. Yeah, this was even better than last week. It was it was great. Yeah, more themes, people. More themes. More cohesiveness. <laughs> Let's move on to Always Sunny. The gang makes Lethal Weapon six. What did you think? It was it was pretty much exactly what they promised, and not really more or less than that. I don't think. The I I gotta say I enjoyed. The especially in this past week with the various Halloween blackface stories, I, I gotta say I appreciated how they handled that in this episode. That was hilarious. Yeah, isn't it strange how every year nobody gets the blackface thing? It yeah. still keeps happening. Can yep. you just say that? Uh, yeah, and I agree. Their the blackface gags worked wonderfully. Although D in blackface was extremely disturbing. <laughs> I thought the whole thing was 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 pretty entertaining, though, uh, because as you say, this is exactly what one would expect for this episode. It didn't really uh, stand out for me. It was kind of um, pleasant and, and pleasing and entertaining and all of that, but not certainly among their more memorable episodes because we kind of knew, already knew exactly what they were going to do. Yeah, I mean, they've just told us, and then they do it, and they've done it before. Mm-hmm. So, admittedly, not quite this concentrated for a whole episode but we, we we've seen it i mean yeah and it has all the expected notes you would you know they've done before like the obvious like no moroticism and mm-hmm. poor editing and etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know it was funny but i think a little too familiar next up is bob's burgers seaplane which uh, I, I i gotta say i enjoy <laughs> lindaizing the 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 su- seduction scene yeah, Linda's fantastic in this episode. I think that was Will Forte. Yeah, as uh, as the would be quasi love interest, and yeah, that was everything about that was great. Um, as per usual, though, Tina's general 
reaction to there being a quickie kiss at island <laughs> was just fantastic not even not even the song but just her her excitement in general obviously fantasy sequence is always great but uh, i i like the idea that that we're not through with that location just because <laughs> tina's so obsessed with it um and i'd say that they did a they did a pretty uh, a pretty commendable job with that action climax near the end yeah it worked it was good it's a lot of fun Another solid Bob's Burgers. I'm glad to have it back for the next few weeks now that baseball is seemingly done. I hate uh, you, baseball. <laughs> next up is uh, Eastbound and Down, which is winding up its theoretical final season again. <laughs> uh, what did you it think? will never end. I uh, hope it never ends. I didn't expect the, the uh, Ken Marino showdown to come this early. Right, yeah, you'd think they would have delayed that. Is the finale next week? I believe there are two more. Two more? Okay, because Kenny's got a pretty damn big hole to dig out of with April, at least. Yeah, I have no idea how or even if they plan on saving the Powers marriage. I mean, they don't have to. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll be curious to see what route they go with They go with that. I mean, Ken Marino is just so good on this. Can we give him some props? Definitely. Uh, he's doing such a different character than we're used to seeing from him, and I think he's been fantastic. Uh, but yeah, it was it was another. It's it's. I'm having difficulty rec- recalling specific details about this episode, except for the ob- obviously fantastic showdown and just Kenny being horrible to April. There was of course the subplot with Steve's uh, continuing creepy body modifications. So now he's got the the blue contacts, and he's gotten his wife a ridiculous, very painful. That would have to be very painful, boob job, and he's looking to replace his chin. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't really call that a subplot. More as just like an insanely creepy running gag. Yeah, I suppose. Um, so yeah, there's still more here. But yeah, I, I was expecting the Marino showdown to come in the finale, probably. Uh, so it was nice to see it here. And having him just beat the crap out of the 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 guy they hired to shake him down, I thought was a delightful twist. And um, I'm still really enjoying Eastbound and Down this season. Yep. And I'm uh, yeah, I have no idea. I'm always curious every season they have the opportunity to just go incredibly subversive and sometimes they do it and sometimes they kind of shy away from the cliff so I'll be curious to see which way they decide to to take that in the next couple episodes so what wins your uh, week in comedy oh I got to give it to Key and Peel yeah definitely Key and Peel yeah good good job boys well done next up we will be putting together reality and genre into one category so we'll be back with that in just a moment I brought it down an octave so that I could get the higher notes. part it was more of a tenor sort of voice tone so I was able to nail that it was pretty good 
Next up is our week in reality and our week in genre. And as you could hear, there are some memorable moments on this week's Amazing Race musical moments. I'll, I'll check it back in with the voice in a little bit. But uh, for, for now, our main re- uh, reality show is The Amazing Race. Uh, Televerse regrets we still have not gotten to 30 for 30. That is still happening. We are sorry. Yep, pretty much. What did you think of this week's Amazing Race? Uh, well, I knew immediately that you'd have things to say because we had a challenge in which people had to sing against the Vienna Boys Choir, which as soon as I, first of all, as soon as I saw that that was going to be a challenge, I knew Tim and Danny were goners. And that was maybe halfway through the episode. And that <laughs> turned out to be exactly the case if I'd been them. The second I got there, I would have been like, nope, take a penalty, keep moving. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Because they, what, he, they were, they had to have been in there for hours and hours. Yeah, I don't know. It depends on how long each of those pull-out sessions were with their coaches. But... They seem pretty extensive. I felt really bad for that coach. <laughs> I-, I was uh, watching, feeling pretty damn good about my picks, the ER docs, when uh, he just starts singing, and I'm like, ah, nice. He- he's going to be able to do this. Yeah, it only took him two tries. The German, I think, would trip up a lot of people. And I thought it was interesting that the, that, like, the one person who the German was no problem for has had trouble finding the pitches. Yes. Uh, it, it was also quite obvious that by the time everyone else had gone and Tim and Danny had done it a couple more tries, they were being easier on them than probably anyone should have been. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, usually yeah, what happens. They, you just do it. Just leave. <laughs> uh, and, and just the reactions of the kids was fantastic. That was delightful. Absolutely delightful. Yes. Uh, this is uh, This is a good kind of challenge. And it's one that Things like this, it's been a while since they've done one. I also really liked the matching the the Russian classical music from, was that last season or the season before? Um, but but there's a lot of different ways to, to give people an incredibly challenging uh, roadblock or detour that is not physical, that is not physical and is not make them eat a lot of food too. So <laughs> yeah. whenever they get more creative with it and, and the amazing race teams have gotten better at puzzles in general or memory based ones. So to have them throw a musical challenge in there, which requires so much as they always tell all of my students, it requires physicality, it requires memory, it requires all of this, uh, a strong sense of rhythm. It requires math. It, requires a lot is is a good way to, to change things up and I, I really appreciated watching it how, how how many of them are like oh god this is the hardest challenge ever as compared right, to yeah. like all the physical like we can carry stuff you know as as long as we have to carry stuff but this is way yeah. harder but I I, I I always think about how would kate and i do on the amazing race and this this week i was like kate and i would have owned it this we week. we would have destroyed <laughs> we would have we would have been there first. totally killed it yeah that one that they're plenty <laughs> that, of other that one week <laughs> yeah. i wouldn't have had to do any driving i could sing could match them it, but no problem i would have even done the bungee jumping if it hadn't been for the wind any uh thoughts on our uh our, our controversy this week with the bags um i'm not gonna lie i probably would have taken the taxi um i mean it was right there they They're already had thrown the bags out bad person yeah, I would not person. have taken the taxi, by the if way. If it had been the first week, I wouldn't have taken the cab. But if it was, like, midway through the competition like this is, I probably would have succumbed to the pressure and taken the cab. I just noticed, by the way, that, because uh, I hadn't actually checked yet, 
I was number one this week in the pool, which has bumped me up to be tied with two other people for fifth. So I've only gone up one slot, but it looks much better because there's three of us. So instead of seven, it looks like five. Um, And you're you're sitting pretty at uh, at ten. So so we're still none of us are anywhere near the top of the pool, which is forty points by uh, Stanley Kobe Blue. Yeah, I haven't been too engaged with the pool because life has been happening, but I will try to get back on the horse. Uh, thank, thank goodness for the automatic picks. But <laughs> the, um, uh, the the only other thing I wanted to mention is I'm really, really looking forward to what must be an epic, epic amount of hatred next week because Jason and Amy were so were more angry than I think I can remember any team ever being. They were pissed, yeah. yeah it was definitely. even, I loved how awkward it was for their, like, what do you even call them? The people they have standing next to Phil at the uh, at the pit stop. Uh-huh. She looked awkward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I always enjoy when Phil puts a little bit of commentary in there, and you could see just based on his the way he was, you know, standing there that he was not happy with the exes for having taken the cab. Uh, and I loved how he just was like not going to let them go. I was like, no, we're going to sit in this awkward moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Phil is such a great host. Ah, uh, he's delightful. Uh, shall we move on to our week in uh, genre? Yes, yes, we shall. Uh, first up, I- I'll just mention that the Walking Dead podcast, of course, with uh, R- Ricky D and myself, and this week we're joined by Randy Jankovic, uh, is up in your feed, and it should if if you're not listening on iTunes, it's also up at sound.site.org, so you can get our thoughts on this week's episode of The Walking Dead. You're still uh, bro- broken up with the series. Blessedly, The Walking Dead free. I'm... I'm- <laughs> I'm walking around fleet-footed. You're walking on sunshine? See what I did there? Uh, See what I did there? Yes, I did. <laughs> Let's move on to uh, our, our two main genre series at the moment, though. American Horror Stories Coven, Fearful Pranks and Sue, and The Returned Camille. Or Camille. Uh, first up, Coven. Right. Uh, which I was a little bit disappointed with this week. You know, Halloween, you expect it to pull out the big stops. And then it kind of feels like it did in the last two minutes. And we have to wait for more of that. Because now we have zombies. Because why not? Well, we also have a psycho husband, you know, killing people. Yeah, but that wasn't very Halloween-y, was it? Yeah, I don't know. Do we think that this is something he's always done? Or to, is this a result of that spell that she did? A while back. I don't know. Um, I think the actor whose name I don't have handy, he does a great job. And he does this in the other things I've seen him in. He he does. He's great at being outwardly friendly, but having that that lower level of just total psycho. The psycho glint. Yeah. So I think it's a good direction for that bit of casting. I don't know if I'm interested in that corner of the show yet, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either so i i I look forward to seeing how they resolve that and whether finding out whether this is something new or something recurring for for him uh but we should probably focus on the rest of this week we have things coming to a new high with uh the conflict between marie laveau and fiona and i think that stuff mostly works i mean anything that ends up with a zombie horde threatening to kick down the 
the doors of a witch of a witch house, I think is a pretty good place for a, a show like this to be. But like I said, I mean, I, I just I wasn't sold on. Actually, my major issue with the episode was the fact that so much of it was spent in these like witches council sessions and flashbacks, which I'm sorry, if you're if you've assembled a witches council to do some investigating on other witches, maybe have them do stuff other than just ask questions. Come on, they're all witches. Do some cool magic shit. <laughs> I did like though the the power that they gave the the one witch and like, giving her the ability to tell truth from lies. I think works really well. If you're gonna have a council asking questions, that's that's nice. Um, and I actually like that we finally got a line of dialogue for Dennis O'Hare and uh, his character's backstory a bit. So I was good with the flashbacks. I, I didn't mind the flashbacks. It was nice that Dennis O'Hare got to talk. I am confused, though, as to how, and I don't know if they're going to explain it or not, but there was nothing in his character, really, that we've seen so far that would have that would have accounted for the creepy living dollhouse thing. Oh, my God. That was awesome. Uh, it was creepy. It was a great image, but I don't really get why he was doing it. Oh, well, we've seen him with dolls earlier this season, as I recall. Like, have you know, we? Yeah, I, I want to say we have. I could be wrong about that, but I, I think so. I think having a, a, as opposed to a burned or buried, but a, a living doll sort of dead body in the house may make things interesting, especially with zombies about. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. I liked the results of the, uh, of, of the, the whole minotaur sequence last week where apparently it's not good to magically sexually assault a minotaur. They get pissed off. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, I have to say that the, severed talking minotaur head was both really silly and kind of creepy at the same time so i give them points for that it was pretty good it was pretty good uh i don't know why marie laveau thinks that they started it considering she said did she not send the minotaur did he send himself i that wasn't really clear they may not be making that clear <laughs> american horror story isn't really a show that likes to stop and explain stuff because if she sent the Minotaur over there, then clearly she started it. But if she doesn't know that he went himself, then that would make sense for her to think they... I, it, I, these are the things I think about when I guess I should be thinking about Frankenstein's monster. Right. Well, you could say that that, uh, that Fiona started it by exhuming Kathy Bates. Well, I guess, but Marie's the one who buried her in the wrong side of town. And then we're we're back to who started what originally. Exactly, chicken and the mess. egg. The answer is dinosaur. Any other thoughts on Frankenboy? I want to see Lily Ray, but it's been too long. And uh, also, it just seems so obvious that our Tysa uh, Farmiga character is the next supreme. Um, I don't uh, know. It seems like they're going that way. It would be great if it turned out it was Gabriel Sidibe instead. Oh, that would be awesome. But she's clearly out of commission for at least probably another episode. But, yeah, we barely saw Frankenboy this week, but I do like Evan Peters a lot, so I'm hoping that he gets to talk again soon. Yeah, well, yeah, he did get that bit of dialogue, I guess you could say, last week. Um, but, uh, yeah, the fact that she's ready to, to poison him and end it seems like a a good move on her part, even though she doesn't understand, you know, because she doesn't understand what happened and why she thinks she, she just, you know, has created this monster. Um, he's on the loose. We'll see what happens with that. But I'm having a lot of fun with American Horror Story, even if it's not the scariest thing. I I'm still having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Speaking of potentially not the scariest thing. The Returned. 
<laughs> we should talk about Lech Ivanaike, the return as it's being called now. And I'm fascinated with the, this is a weird thing to start with, but I'm fascinated with the marketing of this show. Like having it premiere on Halloween and having these sort of like snarky ads run on the AV Club, etc. Versus the actual show. I'll be very curious to see how people react because I don't, it's, I mean, maybe it eventually becomes a horror series, but I don't really think that this premiere is horror-y at all. There's a creepy uh, kid who doesn't talk. There's a kid who doesn't talk and there's a stabbing. But other than that, it's it's it, it's it's incredibly low key. It's very very patient. It's horror in only the vaguest sense, or it's horror in a very different sense. It's an I'll give you different sense. I'm not going to give you vague sense. People come back from the dead. That is horror. Your your family has been ripped apart by a loss for four years, and then the person comes back. That counts as horror, no matter how they play it. I suppose. I mean, there's always the possibility that, like, I could see some of these characters in a couple of weeks deciding this is a good thing and it's nice to have my loved one back, which is not really an, an option on, say, The Walking Dead. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I see the potential for optimism, even though it's very clear that this is a town that is defined by death, um, which is a whole other issue. But I don't know. I, I, I really, really dug the hell out of this premiere. It's so in my wheelhouse. I mean, it's basically a series of, like, Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day or that creepy Belgian movie, Calvaire. You don't need to watch either of those. Okay. Uh, but um, just, like, it's so it's so Euro. It's so Euro horror, and I'm so into it. Yeah, I really, uh, I really like this premiere, and I just love the touch of the twin sisters, I thought that was such a fun way to play that. I just had been assuming that Lena was had been the younger sister and that now she was going to be the older sister. And so for whatever reason, I should have, but I didn't see that last reveal coming with the two of them. I, I'm not I'm never a fan of the twins are magically linked. So that was like a grown worthy moment for me. But just the fact that they were twins and now they are twins separated Aren't, by four yes. years. I love it. Yeah, that's that's a really really great touch. Um, can we just mention how gorgeous this show is? Yeah, it's Holy pretty crap. Pretty. This thing is well, and not just to not just to look at. It's probably the best looking show since Top of the Lake, and it has a very similar advantage of this beautiful location. But I also really like the score by Mogwai, um, which I've I think I've actually listened to the score independently, and it's 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 quite good. There's some good stuff coming with that. Uh, I, d I don't want to say too much because like very little actually happens i feel like besides the fact that we get the initial premise illustrated to us in a few different ways we don't actually know where any of it's going or how quickly it's going to move but i don't know i think it's i think it's a very effective premiere i'm really excited about the prospect of foreign language tv being a somewhat of a deal in north america because i kind of feel like that's never really happened before and it should there's plenty of great tv around the world why limit ourselves to the ones where they speak english so uh, we'll see if this catches on. Hopefully people yeah. are are checking it out. I also really liked it. It feels way overdue, that development. Definitely. What wins your week in genre? I will give it to Les Revenants this week. I'll give, yeah, sorry, The Returned. We're calling it The Returned. It's called The Returned. <laughs> I, I will give it to Les Revenants as well. I don't want to call it The Return. That's not its name. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, anyways, uh, the uh, like, would you say Jules and Jim? No. You would not. You would, that would be very weird if you did. Well, pe people do it a lot, but yes, I agree. It's you as a gym. Yeah. Anyways, uh, that, so that wraps up our week in reality and genre. Now we're going to take a break and come back with drama.
This week in drama, we have Parenthood, The M-Word, Boardwalk Empire, Marriage and Hunting, Masters of Sex, Brave New World, and The Good Wife, The Next Day. Parenthood, I don't have a lot to say about this one. Of course, my review is up at Sound on Sight. Um, we, we went back to the election. We had our debate. I assume we're not going to see another one, but uh, if, if so, the first debate for Christina in her, in her mayoral campaign. Uh, what did you think of this episode? It was all right. It was probably the... Not as distinguished as the last few. It's interesting how, if you watch the promos for this episode, NBC did something really sneaky. I don't know if you noticed, but they had like a clip from the from the debate that made it look like Monica Prater just has a breakdown. <laughs> and then you watch it and it's completely not that at all, uh, which was kind of sly on their part. But I don't know, that was such a such a choreographed big moment that they don't really usually do very much and it was sort of disconcerting to see them do it but other than that it was a fine episode there wasn't too much that i will take away from it the stuff with bonnie bedelia and craig t nelson i think was quite solid and made sense for the characters and was quite painful as well uh crosby and the band were pretty hilarious the although it did feel like a very long car ad, if we're being honest. Yes, suppose the I I I, I now want to see the spinoff of Drunk Joel and Drunk Crosby go shopping. <laughs> yes, because that sounds amazing to me. Uh, I I really enjoyed the way that they set up these very familiar conflicts for Crosby this season, and then resolve them in the same episode. Uh, yes, it's been delightful because it's like it's, it, it feels very much to me like a comment on other series. Hey, you know how other series would have this whole car thing turn into a midlife crisis and huge marital conflict. That's not what happens in real nope. life. Every, everyone likes the car. <laughs> yeah. Well, not even that. It's, it's, he doesn't care about the car because he has, is married to a wonderful woman that he loves. And he, the reason that they need the car is because they're building a family together that he's happy about. So. Of course, why would that become like this huge, mega traumatic midlife crisis moment for him? And they did the same thing earlier in the season with Jabbar sort of starting to act out because uh, of the baby and, and some other other plot lines as well. I enjoyed the second of their Adventure Time shout outs this season. Yeah, they love Adventure Time. And they they love uh, Lemon Grab specifically because each of the scenes they've they've shown have have featured him. Yeah, well, I kind of feel like it's because they have so many, like, they've had so many infants on the show, and Lemon Grab is kind of like an infant. <laughs> yeah. Like, it just won't stop. But um, <laughs> do you feel the same way about, like, the Erica Christensen plotline? Do you, like, do you feel like they should be wrapping that up quicker, or are you interested in the fact that they just keep bringing what's-his-name back on? Well, I'm interested in that plotline if it is about things other than I want to have an affair. Last week, it seemed like it was about power dynamics in their relationship and her feeling unheard and unvalued. 
and especially with that that lack her her feeling like there was a lack of parity in their relationship tied in with her lack of self-worth after having not been able to get a job that was really interesting to me look it's the dude from the office who I feel like he just keeps getting stuck with these unfortunate roles. The actor is just fine. I don't, you know, he, he seems dreamy and, and look, we can have our two, all our, our kids together in this beautiful house and share a nice dinner and play make believe and pretend that is less interesting to me. Um, and by less, I mean, not, I, I did think her reaction as soon as the wife got home was, was quite, quite damning. Yeah. And, Oh, yeah. The fact that she has to immediately leave and suddenly just feels like a terrible person. I think I'll be interested to see how that blows back, kind of. But I, I, I like the idea that, that, that they'll they'll bring up all these issues without ever having any, anyone actually do anything. Yeah. I think that's kind of an interesting way to play it. And also just, you know, I, cause, because I review this every week, I there's certain things that I start to notice that I really appreciate. And one of them is the economy of the script on this show and this is a show that's not afraid to use words uh remember last week with everybody yelling at christina all at once it's very stressful when they do that but this whole sequence with uh with julia this week uh there's no dialogue it's all in performance it's all in you know clear like body language and 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 just uh you know timing and uh, of some of these scenes and i really appreciate that also just comparing it with some other shows i mean we review the Walking Dead at Sound on Sight, and of course we have our podcast. And when you compare the way that this show manages all of these different characters, and almost every week they all get a moment, and they all feel like they've been developed, and interesting things happen. And then you compare that to a show like The Walking Dead, which really struggles to to deal with more than a handful of characters at a time. Dude, they should totally let Cadmus be the next Walking Dead showrunner. Oh, that would be bad. <laughs> no, no, I'd watch that. I mean, I would watch it, of course, but and I love Jason Kadams, and uh, I enjoy The Walking Dead, but that does, I don't think he's interested in that. No, but there's so much money. <sighs> um, the, the other thing I did want to mention was the... I, I was just almost laughing out loud at Amber this week. I'm nothing like my mom. Let's go get married the same way she did. <laughs> it was so beautifully unself-aware. It, yeah, I just that was hilarious and wonderful, and I also liked that scene with Drew. And again, similarly beautifully self un, unself aware is that moment with Sarah and her mom, where she's like, "Oh, it's not like me. Oh, oh it's not. It's not exactly the same." <laughs> and her getting yeah. to just to, to sort of revel in a, "Huh, it's a hard position to be in, isn't it?" Was sort of <laughs> delightful. Yes, yes. Uh, Bonnie Bedelia is like the quiet MVP of, of this season, I think. Uh, so yeah, it was good. Uh, and there's, like you said, lots of good stuff. But I think just a just a slight hair below past installments. Let's move on to Boardwalk Empire, Marriage, and Hunting. And this episode was more interesting to me than last week. And uh, I, I gotta say, uh, it was hard to look at Margot Bingham's face. They did a good job with that makeup. Yes, the, she she did look quite awful. Even though I I I'm not a fan of what they've done with that character in general, just total damsel in distress stuff, and just the way that she's controlled by one man to the next is just ugh, not so good. But hey, this episode was seventy five percent Michael Shannon, which makes it the best possible Boardwalk Empire <laughs> episode. Someone can we just give can Van Alden just kill every other character and be the guy on Boardwalk Empire who just he and his wife and like I guess Michael Stuhlbarg can stick around mm -hmm. and a couple other people but man 
he just runs roughshod over this show. It, it it did feel very much like him this week, him just sort of uh, bringing that entire chunk of the show, everything in Chicago, just just sitting them down and saying, OK, useless, 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 interesting, useless. Let's clear the table and start again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the idea of bringing Jack Houston back into the fold, I think, is is a good one because he's the, the show's other power player who's gotten nothing to do this season. And I thought all of his scenes were actually quite adorable this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're just getting a hunting license. Uh, but, yeah, it's all Michael Shannon. Come on. Just look at the guy. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. The, the, the scenes within this week were a lot of fun. I also like when, because it seems like it doesn't actually happen a lot, when we get a reminder that not just the nameless white people, but our leads are men of their time when it comes to race. That's something that the show and many, many period dramas like to sort of not address as frequently as possible, as as frequently as they are able to let the audience assume that the protagonist or the main central figure shares the audience's views on, on gender and on race and ethnicity and on sexual orientation they're, most shows are happy to do that. So when it comes up in this episode, I I've, I really appreciated that. Yes, that was that was a nice touch. Uh, totally. The uh, Sally uh, Sally can also stay. stay yeah. On on my version of the show where Michael Shannon kills nine tenths of the characters, because uh, she's just awesome. It was she was such, every time that character comes on, she's such a breath of fresh air, especially compared to daughter mm-hmm. yeah and uh i i'm really still enjoying daughter if only for what that has done to the soundtrack this season but i'm ready and of course as we always I, my reviews on my reviews i always say i've started watching the show just this season but i'm ready for chalky to be gone and narcisse to be gone and a lot of these arcs i don't care about the characters enough um and i know that will be blasphemy to many a long-term fan, but I just, I, I don't, I just am, I'm not engaging with most of these characters and that's a problem. Yes, I agree. So yeah, let's, let's just give Van Alden that backdoor pilot. It could even <laughs> be this one. They can do it original style and we can just forget about the rest of the episode. I, I could watch Van Alden gets into hijinks with the Capones. I could watch that. Yeah, totally. And just, just the way Shannon is able to play that character as being totally laughable and completely terrifying sometimes in the same scene is just a wonder to behold. He's like Walter White and Tony Soprano rolled into one, except funnier. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, let's move on to Masters of Sex, Brave New World. And there'd been a lot of talk about Alice and Janney before the season started, and a fair- we finally got to see why. I thought this was a nice little showcase for her. Yeah, they introduced her last week, but it was only this week she got really anything to do. And I'll be curious to see how much she'll be a fixture in the next few episodes. But I think her scenes are pretty obviously the highlight of this episode, which I liked overall, but I wasn't super 100% wild about. this. Uh, the scenes in Florida felt uh, like they felt a little bit too openly like a gender swapped version of Mad Men. Was that just me? Oh uh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that 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 fits. I liked seeing Barry Boswick pop up. That was he's always appreciated. And I forget I don't I, her name escapes me, but I also really enjoyed that actress as well. That whole couple was was pretty entertaining. Um and we should probably talk about the final moments. Yeah, which 
I'm not sure about that. Like, I, you obviously know it's coming, but I felt like there was no buildup to that. I feel like we, we didn't spend any time with Virginia establishing what her feelings are yeah. on this whole thing. Uh, if she's strictly doing it just for the research, then it kind of makes sense, but that's not how they played it at all. No, it, it, I, I thought it, I was not a fan, I guess, because it, it, it felt like you said, it felt like it came out of nowhere. And also just because they had, it, it seemed like they had established that this was a difficult to believe or sort of thing for them to try to study. And she didn't say that she had achieved climax, you know, in a situation like this before. So it was just sort of like, hey, let's see if I can do it. Not, you know, we, there's no, it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense for her to be the one to try because she has not done that before. So why would she think that she ha- would have this specific, you know, it just, it didn't make sense from a scientific perspective as well as from a character perspective. Y- yeah. And she's been established very clearly as a woman who knows what her body's done yeah. and capable of and has fun enjoying it. So it, it does seem odd that they would introduce that as it, that they would have that segue happen in that way. So, yeah, that could have been better developed. And it seems strange that the least well-developed part of the episode involves our relationship between our central characters when so many things around them are so well-developed. So that's quite odd. The, um, I mean, I, I find it interesting that last week I was talking about melodrama, and, and this week we have Peyton Place as a motif, both the film and the book. And sort of the show giving into those heightened elements uh, left and right, I think is interesting. Less successful for me was the way suddenly everyone is talking about Freud. <laughs> like we, he didn't, he went unmentioned for the whole show, which seemed weird to begin with. And then this week he's everywhere. Thanks to, was it Anna Freud, his daughter mm-hmm. uh, touring, which I didn't even realize was, it was a thing that was kind of neat to learn about. But uh yeah, it just it seemed a little bit too neat to have that as a motif and have literally every character talking about or reading Freud. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I I see where you're coming from with that. Uh, other than that, I mean, it was it was good, but it just felt a little bit too a little bit too schematic this week, a little bit too neat in terms of sort of laying out the motifs and sort of having everything pay off in the way you expect, et cetera, et cetera. And and also the the resolution of the Florida plotline was was very easily guessable. Yeah, I, I, I've been very much enjoying Masters of Sex, but I don't feel like it's necessarily lived up to our expectations after the pilot. And so I'm still very much on board. I'm really enjoying the show. But after the pilot, I was like, maybe this is a contender for my top 10. Now it's definite. I don't think it is. I'm curious right. where you are with the show. No, that sounds about right. I think there's just aspects of the execution that, that I think we were hoping would be a little bit subtler or a little bit more effective. And they, they I think it's still finding its feet. It's funny because when I read about the show, a lot of people have been like, oh, this is where the show starts to make sense. I'm like, really? Because it feels to me like this is where I know that it's got problems. <laughs> yeah, we were on board with the show a lot earlier than most of the other critics that I've, at least whose reviews I've read. Um, and so it's interesting to watch that develop. But uh, but we'll we'll see where the the next you know half of the season takes us. Let's move on to the Good Wife the next day, and uh, we have the next part of our of our uh, journey with 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 Floric Agos. What did you think? Uh, it was a lot of fun. Have we had Richard Kind as a judge before? I don't think so. That was nice. I always enjoy him. Uh, yeah, he was 
I mean, kind of an obvious choice, but still pretty great. Uh, and uh, although they they probably could have done the quash the beef joke maybe one fewer times, <laughs> but still pretty great. Um, I just the the pettiness was fantastic, and and, and I love how it, it went from pettiness to just pure rage at the end from Will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked all of his scenes with his much younger apparently girlfriend, mm-hmm. who we don't who I don't think we've ever seen before. Uh, it's you know kind of a cliched move, but it makes sense having Will and Diane team up again at the end. Also quite satisfying. And totally expected, but still pretty great. Uh, I don't know. There were so many little things in this episode that I liked and not really anything that I disliked. I loved watching Mamie Gummer watch them fight with each other. Yes. It was delightful. (laughs) She's really, really great on this. She's got one of the less sort of outwardly wacky supporting characters. I, I, I like the way she just underplays everything that she does. Uh, She's fantastic to watch. Uh, the the gummers are great. What what do you really expect? But um, what else? I I liked everything with Alicia and Grace and uh, and especially that one scene with Zach. Who I was I was just beginning to wonder where's Zach in all this, and there he mm. popped up. Yeah. So good good timing. Definitely the best kids on TV outside of Parenthood, obviously, because that's about that. Yeah. But I mean, with shows that have kids that aren't about raising families, really, that are in some other genre. I, I, I feel like clearly... this is too many qualifiers. How about recurring children as opposed to main character children? Sure. Okay. Okay. Best recurring kids, for sure. <laughs> um, what else should we mention? Uh, the actual uh, case of the week I thought was was interesting, and I, I, I liked having that bit of tension come up with the Gary Cole character, although, although I think it was handled in a reasonable fashion. I, and I like that both this week and then also last week, the cases of the week that we're seeing pop up are people that we had seen previously. So they're returning to cases that had been mentioned in you know last season. And so it, that feels it's a little because it's something we talked about with our legal correspondent, uh, Lewis Zimmerman, uh, that that one of the main bits of inaccuracy and in a lot of legal procedurals as well as including the good wife is the lack of sense of time of just how long it takes for a case to come to trial and to to be done and so to have these cases of the week be recurring cases of the week as opposed to new ones every single time may make sense and uh and i think is a nice touch i also think we should mention melissa george yeah i actually really liked her scenes this week and i wasn't i'm first of all i'm glad that they don't seem to be doing with that plot line, what I was worried they were doing, the fact that we got it this week and not six weeks from now, I yeah. think is really, really nice. Well, that's the thing. If I like this storyline, unless we find out Peter's the dad, then I, I don't. It really doesn't feel like that's what they're doing with it. Fingers crossed. She does but, still call him Peter when she should call him Mr. Flark or governor-elect. That's true. Um, but I, I liked all those scenes. It just they added her just having morning sickness and just looking awful through the whole thing. I think added an, added an interesting dynamic. Well, and this also tells you about the show. I, I spent the first half of that trying to decide if she actually had morning sickness or if she was pretending to totally. have to get like an in with Alicia. Yeah, she could still be pretending. We don't know. Yeah, but it seems highly unlikely. It seems highly unlikely. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, so what wins your week in drama this week? Ooh, that's a toughie. Uh, no, actually, it's not. I, for once, I will give it to Boardwalk Empire, just because I don't feel like Van Alden's ever going to get a, show, a, a showcase like that again. So, 
slow clap for Michael Shannon. And I'll give it to Masters of Sex, Brave New World. Um, but yeah, lots of fun, lots of fun TV going on right now. A few show notes before we go to our DVD shelf with Dan Heaton of Public Transportation Snob and Sound on Sight to talk about Homicide Life on the Street. Our outro music is Sweet Petite by the Bicycles. You can find this post up at soundonsight.org where you can leave us a comment, let us know what you thought of the week's television. You can also, of course, like us on Facebook to follow the goings on at Sound on Sight TV. Let me know, by the way, uh, on Facebook or on Twitter if I should be posting all the Doctor Who articles on Facebook, because I don't want to spam you guys, so I haven't been. But there, like I said, there will be a solid two to three articles a day for Doctor Who, as well as our usual handful of reviews that go up almost every day. So I don't want to spam you guys. I would like to know. Give me some feedback what you want to be getting links to at Sound on Sight, uh, at the Televerse Facebook page, that is. Of course, you can also email us at televerse at gmail.com. You can find the podcast in iTunes. We have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. We would love to get any feedback you guys have about the podcast there. You could rate us or review us, and that does help the show. And, of course, we're both up on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, and you are? At Sucker Howell. And what is our question of the week? I'd be curious to get people's thoughts on subtitled television and whether or not it's something that they would be interested in watching on a regular basis. Good question. Yes. Fill us in. Where are you with this uh, potential new trend of importing TV shows? And and not instead of remaking them. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Although it's worth mentioning The Return is also getting remade. Ugh. Anyways, let's uh, take a break, listen to a clip, and come back with our DVD shelf of Homicide Life on the Street with Dan Heaton. I'm Janelle. Come on, I'll show you around. The box where we match wits against the city's master criminals. There's one of the masters. The fishbowl. Wherein said criminals reflect on the error of their ways. The board. Open cases are in red, closed cases are in black. You look up there, you know exactly where you stand. About how many things in life can you say that, huh? It looks like a lot of open cases. You know, you're young to be in homicide. Yeah, I spent the last two years on the mayor's security detail. We'll get you to fill out all the papers that's necessary, get you partnered up. We work partners here, one's primary, one secondary. Let me just say something, sir. This is where I've always wanted to be. You know what I'm saying? Homicide, thinking cops, not a gun. This. That's very poetic. Hey, G. Where's Munch? Felicia wants to know. The double stabbing.
back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week at the DVD shelf, we're talking Homicide, Life on the Street, a fabulous, fabulous police procedural, and uh, one that I'm kind of surprised we haven't gotten to yet. And here to help us with that is returning guest Dan Heaton from Sunday Sight. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here to talk about one of my favorite shows. Now, what made you want to talk about Homicide? Well, it's pretty simple. I think if you really boiled it down, Homicide is my favorite show of all time. And there's, I could go on a laundry list of the reasons, but to narrow it down mostly, I just think it to me is the most interesting cop show. I mean, that's been done when it showed up in the nineties, especially it was such a unique show for the time period and what it did, especially for a network. And then I love the cast. I think that might be the strongest thing. I love pretty much all the characters, especially from the first few seasons. It's it's one of those shows I can go back to over and over and still find new things. And for a procedural, that's pretty rare. So that that's saying a lot. Uh, I, I had vague memories of watching Homicide growing up. Uh, I, re- I, would re- I remembered um, there being like crossovers between Law and & Order and Homicide and Chicago Hope, I want to say. And some of these other shows, they would... Uh, like especially, I particularly remember Munch traveling around to all the different shows uh, as a kid, and so I went back a while, uh, not that long ago actually, but like a year ago to to watch Subway and a couple of the other episodes for my cops best cops list, and uh, but I hadn't really d- dived into the show until this shelf. So thank you, Dan, because I really had a lot of fun with the show. I think it's really good, and uh, definitely we talked with uh, with Ellen Gray about uh, about NYPD Blue, which was on at a similar time. And it is odd to me because we see, we talked about how M- nobody seems to talk about NYPD Blue, and I still hold hold to that. I think it's odd that nobody seems to remember that series. It's even more odd to me that with all the talk we hear of The Wire and of uh, various cop shows, that people don't seem to talk about Homicide Life on the Street because this is a really good show. Yeah, and I... um. I, it's weird to me, too, because there are so many connections between The Wire and Homicide, obviously Baltimore and David Simon, and so many of the actors from Homicide, especially the second-tier actors, show up on The Wire. And um, I think what's interesting, and also even The Shield, which I feel like is a much different show than Homicide, but really reacted to Homicide. And, I mean, having one of Homicide's stars get killed in the first episode I feel like those two shows kind of carry the mantle from Homicide, but people kind of tend to forget the show that was on for seven years throughout the 90s, possibly because, you know, it was almost it was 20 years ago. But also, it never got huge ratings. It was very steady, like NYPD Blue and even Nash Bridges just beat it in ratings constantly. So I think that's part of it, but it's one of the shows people are still discovering, and I hope more people will discover because... Even when it kind of goes down a little bit in the last few seasons, it's still really good TV, and that's not an easy thing to pull off, especially with how many procedurals we have now to still kind of seem unique in that way. Simon, what was your relationship with the show? Had you watched a lot of it before this? No, I definitely saw some of it as a kid because my parents watched it probably on a near week. My my parents weren't religious TV watchers, but I'm sure they, they caught quite a bit of homicide because I do remember... Uh, catching glimpses of Munch as a kid. And I even remember uh, watching some of the uh, closing Homicide movie, which would have aired in 2000, so that the the timeline works out. But other than that, um, no, I I hadn't watched any Homicide in the interim until this shelf. 
And full disclosure, I only caught about 15 episodes, which for some shows that would be a lot, but for this show it felt like it was only scratching the surface. And I, I think, Dan, you said this is your favorite show of all time. T- to me, I mostly enjoy the show as sort of a precursor to The Wire. Uh, well, actually not mostly, just it, but one of the key pleasures for me was was noticing where certain aspects of The Wire's storytelling and even aesthetic style came from. And you can see they come directly from Homicide in terms of uh, shooting style, in terms of editing, in terms of uh, sometimes storytelling, uh, and even just it's plot beats here and there. You, you, you see you know, where where the origin of that is. Although, of course, David Simon was not the showrunner on this show. That was, that was uh, Paul, at, at, at Paul Atanasio was the, cre- uh, was the creator here, although it is based on David Simon's book. Um, and um, you can see the origins of, of The Wire, which I think Kate and I will agree The Wire is, is, is sort of unshelfable because <laughs> it's just too big. We would have to go like a season-by-season season shelf or something. We've never actually figured that out. But uh, I guess a homicide will have to do as a as a substitute. And I have to say that if you just go through, just go to the Wikipedia page and see the writers and directors who worked on this sucker. Holy crow! I mean the the the, the roster of on screen talent is one thing, but in terms of the the teleplay writers and the directors, I mean Whit Stillman directed an episode, <laughs> the only episode of TV he ever did. That's crazy. Yeah. It's- yeah. It's a remarkable thing, as you say, Simon, to look at who was involved with the show. And uh, I mean, just just as just watching it, like you, like we've said, the cast is remarkable. And one of the things I really enjoy about it is that you have such a big cast that seems to have gone by the wayside in recent uh, police procedurals, probably as a way to keep costs down. But I, I like that it actually feels somewhat like a precinct because there's more than four cops. Yeah, and and there are some episodes where some of the cops aren't in it at all or only have a, a very minor role. Yeah, should we? I feel like we should talk about some of these characters. One of the things that uh, you, you mentioned, Simon, when we were talking about talking about the show earlier this week was that you enjoyed going back and forth between Homicide and Brooklyn Nine-Nine because you like to think of Andres Brower's <laughs> character as being the same. And now I kind of can't unsee it, and it's glorious. I think I think uh, <laughs> Brower is clearly a standout, but I really think it's a pretty deep bench, especially when you look at the earlier seasons. I think it's really a shame that the the network decided they had to get rid of Crisetti. I think it's really a shame that they wrote out uh, Melissa Leo. I'm assuming maybe she wanted to leave, but I really missed that character when she left. Which which are the characters that stood out uh, th- that stand out? I should say, Dan, to you when you watch. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's so it goes weirdly because part of me will watch an episode and think Richard Belzer, he's so funny, he's my favorite. I love Munch, and then but Pembleton and Bayless stand out, of course, because there's a stretch in the middle of the series, especially where those two, and unfortunately for some of the other actors, kind of took over the show. But their their bond is so strong. I mean, you think of Three Men and Adina from the first season, but I also really like Ned Beatty as Volander, who was in the first three seasons. I think he he's so grumpy, but I mean, for Ned Beatty to do a TV show and basically both him and Daniel Baldwin got frustrated because they were always on the edge of cancellation and stuff and quit. But I I love him in the early seasons and and even Clark Johnson, who doesn't really he doesn't act really anymore. He just directs TV and movies is so strong as Meldrick Lewis. And he lasts through the whole series. I mean, I it's hard to say who my favorite is. I mean, Pembleton is hard to go by, but that's what you, like you said, there's just so many characters 
And throughout the year, they bring in different people like Reed Diamond, who comes in to be the, the hot guy, but is actually also really, <laughs> really interesting character. And they put him through the ringer like you wouldn't believe. I mean, that character. So it's never the characters never as simple as they look, you know, which I really like. Simon, how about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you really can't mess with Pimbleton. I think that he, uh, Brower is just so good. And there's a reason that he's front and center in episodes like uh, like the subway, obviously, which may be if there's a single episode of Homicide that people still talk about. I think it has to be that one. And understandably, I think it's amazing. Uh, Dan, you said it's a list uh, of of, of really good episodes and essential episodes. And that one wasn't an essential for you. And I got to I got to ask why, because I feel like it's definitely if not their best, then definitely top three and one of the best cop show episodes I've ever seen. Was it a clerical error? <laughs> I might have been. I think there was a challenge because when, you know, you asked me to give a list of about 15 episodes, and to me that is impossible. Yeah. And <laughs> that's that's a great episode. I mean, with, um, you know, with Vincent D'Onofrio as a guest, great guest performance. And it's so different because most of the time the people that die are dead. So to take it from a different direction, it's really cool. And, and there was a PBS documentary just about that episode and the making of it, which if, you, if you're able to drag it up, I'm not sure if it's on YouTube, is really fascinating. But I can't argue with that being the best one. That's the challenge. When I was going back and watching a lot of these through the seasons, I would say, oh, that's my favorite. Oh, that's the best one. And then there's probably 20 or 30 that I could say, well, that's good because of this. And it's it's a real challenge. I think almost the first two seasons, you could say almost any of those episodes stand up. Although yeah. I, I didn't mean to segue into favorite episodes right away, but since we're on mm -hmm. the subject, uh, actually Subway is not my favorite episode that I watched, even though it's it's great. I, if I had to pick one, I think I would have to go for The Gas Man, which uh, is, is a totally, I mean, they broke format a lot, but even for them, it's a totally atypical episode. But I just love this notion of just following Bruno Kirby around and having him stalk Pembleton for the hour and just spending time with those characters who are so well-written and performed and have that mixture of pathos and humor and then, you know, menace at the end. I think that's just such a perfectly executed character study and sort of little contained mini-movie for a show that often spun out stories into actual movie length. And there's a reason I wanted you guys to watch that because it's not it's a season finale, but it's not really how you would normally consider a season finale would be. But it's it's for me, it's almost like what the show's about, because it does something completely different. You barely even see the detectives except for Pembleton from Bruno Kirby's view. And it's really funny, which is weird, because like you said, it leads to menace. And that's where that weird mix of humor and, and there's a lot of music and that episode. I could not argue with you as being one of the best ones. Oh, the soundtrack is amazing. Well, and it, like you say, it's a finale, which is just weird. It's just such an odd thing to to have as a finale, but it really works. And uh, it's sort of like a little coda to the season in a way. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a really good episode. I, I this could so quickly become the Chris Farley show. I feel like we should <laughs> be wary of that because one of one of the fun things about watching some of these episodes was also just who was popping up in these guest roles. So you have Marsha Gay Harden ripping your heart out in a doll's eyes and, and you have uh, just e even just like with some of the recurring cast when Reed Diamond shows up, I was like, yay, I like this actor. It's nice to, you know, because everybody else already knew him from Homicide, but I know him from Dollhouse and Much Ado About Nothing. 
because of my Whedonisms. Uh, so, so just, you know, watching people on here pop up or Giancarlo Esposito <laughs> who shows up in, was it season seven as, as yeah. Yafikota's uh, son. We haven't mentioned Yafikota, which seems very odd throughout the entire series, the individual performances and also writing and directing are just fantastic. in, in so many of these episodes and, um, I feel like we, we got to branch off into something more more analytical or else we'll just turn into uh, th- that one was awesome, too, because there's so much of it. Yeah, well, I could. I, one thing I wanted to point out is when they started, I mean, really, Paul Atanasio wrote the pilot, but it was really Barry Levinson and Tom Fontana. And I think that's why it seems so different, because Barry Levinson was all movies. But they were so strict. Like they had these rules like no car chases, no gunshots. We're going to do we're not going to resolve our cases like basically they had this. I don't know if I call it a manifesto, but this idea that we're going to do all these different things. And the interesting thing is that that stuck for about two seasons, two and a half seasons. <laughs> yeah. And then in order. But it's weird because part of me wants to say, oh, well, you know, because there's this thing near the end of the third season where three detectives get shot. And that was the first time they'd done anything like that. And part part of the old school, you could say, well, that kind of changed it. But they found ways, like there's an episode at the end of the sixth season where there's a huge shootout in this police station, and it's a completely different show, but I still feel like it's really powerful and it really works. So the way they adjust it, I think, is really interesting. Well, and because they had so strictly avoided that for the first two seasons, it made it all the more significant when it happened. I I started watching that episode where the three detectives get shot, and... And I was just kind of watch, walking along, you know, watching along, and there's some nice little comedic beats with Melissa Leo and William Baldwin, and then three of our main characters get shot, one in the heart, one in the head, and it just blindsided me because that wasn't what the show had been, and they managed to take these really heightened moments and deal with them in a realistic or what felt or feels like a realistic way. When, you, when you've seen these characters normal daily life and you know for for so long and then you put them into an extraordinary situation i'm way more interested than if it's you know like a show like Grey's anatomy is so amazing at the heightened ridiculous situations it puts its characters into they one of these days that show will end and we'll do a dvd shelf and i will just gush forever about that three-part shooter in the hospital arc they did over on Grey's. But when everything is constantly heightened like that, it takes you out of, of some of the relationship with the characters in a way. And so by, by sticking so so low stakes or low key for so long in the early run of the show, those later episodes are all the more powerful. I can't really think of another show that made that shift work or that did that shift on purpose or or at least started out restrained and then sort of let itself let it all hang out every once in a while. Like, that's an interesting approach that I can't really think of another series taking. Yeah, it made me think of something like The West Wing, which went to, you know, it was Sorkin, so it was heightened in its own way, but then went to Wellsland when he took over and became just a completely different show and took a solid season to figure itself out again. Whereas on Homicide, when they start going bigger, it still feels like, the same show but you know you can look compare season one to season seven or something like that and it's going to feel different but as you watch along it's a very gradual progression yeah and i think also 
Well, what's interesting about Homicide is they did have to make some adjustments a lot based on network notes in order to stay, not be canceled, because they were up for cancellation, especially during the first few years, three to four years for a while. So the fourth season especially is when all of a sudden there's there's all these things. There's a sniper and there's all these kind of sensationalistic things where they kind of go almost too far. But then they got two more seasons ordered and they were like, oh, great. So then the fifth and sixth seasons aren't really that crazy but also too like we mentioned Crisetti recently i mean the network forced them to get rid of him and so instead of just getting rid of him in some weird way and just saying he's gone like oh he's gone they write this this episode where basically which is one of the best episodes of the show about him committing suicide so they found ways to adjust to the network and like make it work like Reed Diamond was brought in because he looked nice, but they didn't just make him this like they started out that way, but they changed him up. They they found ways to like kind of um, adjust to what the network did and not kill the show. And by the way, just as the the heterosexual female of the group, the fact that they that that, that hair on Reed Diamond, man, the fact that they brought him in to, to be the, the heartthrob character. When you had Kyle Secor over there being uh, Bayless in that, what I would have assumed was that role already was very odd to me. <laughs> but anyways, uh, we, we should I, and I did want to mention him, actually, because, of course, I know him from Veronica Mars, where he was cast because Rob Thomas was kind of going, what's where's Kyle Secor been? Uh, that, he, that guy was great on Homicide. Let's bring him on to Veronica Mars. That's kind of how I feel about him as well. Some of these actors, they, they pop up here and there. I've gotten to know Melissa Leo's work a lot more recently. But some of these guys, I feel like I never see them, and I don't know why they aren't popping up more. Well, you know, you mentioned Yafit Kato earlier, who we somehow didn't mention before that. And he's actually, he, he might be my secret favorite. I mean, he had a huge role in the show in general. I mean, in the later seasons, he's even writing episodes. And his presence is so important. And one of my favorite scenes, uh, I forget, uh, I think it's in uh, The Damage Done. Um, one of my favorite scenes of the whole show that I saw is when he greets the detectives and he's all smiles. And he's talking about their clearance rates and about the case that's going on. He's, he's just, he seems so cheerful and then he leaves and they're just like, I've never seen him so angry. <laughs> and I just think things like that, like are just so atypical for a for a cop show. And I'm 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 wondering, yeah, what what has Yafit Kato been up to all this time? I, I assume sort of like Clark Johnson, he doesn't do this sort of thing anymore. I, I just like to assume they're happily retired because they don't need to work. And so uh, which may not be the case. But if if they want to pop up on, say, something like The Good Wife or Justified or any of these other shows that are known for their fabulous casting, I would be very happy to see them turn up. Yeah, I, and I think Yafa Koto got frustrated after the show and just ended up retiring. I think Clark Johnson decided he, he, he before he was on Homicide, was really just a behind-the-scenes kind of crew guy. So that's a little different. But Yafa Koto, I think, just got – like to have this role for seven seasons and then the movie. And, I mean, the movie's basically about everyone's reaction to, you know, what happens to him. That character, yeah, I mean, I can't argue with the assignment. I think he, there's, he has so many great moments. Like after the shooting, when he just breaks down at the side of the road and, like, pounds on the car and is just – and you just don't see that character act that way. So it's more powerful because he's always kind of has it together. He's, he's brilliant. It's perfect for the part. 
Well, and he's a nice, a very stable force throughout the series because he's one of the few characters, him and Clark Johnson are the two main ones that come to mind for me, that are present through the entire series. Even in season seven, you don't have Pembleton, which just seems very odd to not have Andre yeah. Brower on, on Homicide. Um, but but it is important to have those those mainstays there, and he's definitely one of them. I, I think we should talk about the, the, the movie because... I'm of two minds about it. First of all, uh, I think it's kind of terrible just in its construction where it doesn't make any sense. Let's get the gang back together. This is not how it would ever be in real life, but we want to get all these characters in a room, so we're going to say that this th- th- that they're going to let all these people who aren't really in this department anymore or aren't cops contribute to your police your policing of this uh, case uh, that that feels completely false for a show that for the most part seemed to take the the police work very seriously throughout its run however i cannot argue with the, with its existence just because it gives us that amazing sequence with pembleton and bayless where spoiler alert we find out that Bayless, because it had been highly suggested in the finale, but we find out that Bayless has killed uh, a, a somebody. He's killed a bad guy who got off, who was likely going to go kill more people. He found him, he tracked him down, and executed him in the back of an alley. And, and he confesses to Pembleton. And so to watch Pembleton struggle, to watch this conflict between the the man who uh, who represents the moral certainty and black and white in Pembleton and the man who's always obsessed with the wise and the gray in Bayless to watch it come to a head is fantastic. Yeah. And I think I agree with you. The movie is pretty terrible and pretty awesome at the same time. <laughs> but I mean, cause you watch it and there's some characters just show up and are like, Hey guys. And then they leave and that's about it. But I agree that that scene, I mean, Bayless is really the heart of the show from the start. He's the rookie who shows up. He leaves at the end of the seventh season, but that scene between those two makes it worthwhile. And Andre Brower and both those two are great in the whole movie. Some of the other characters don't do much, but that scene is great, but also it's kind of hokey. But I really like the final scene of the show, of the movie, when Giordello comes in to, and sees like Adina Watson, and then he sees Cressetti and Daniel Baldwin and Felton, and there's the empty chair and all of that. It's it's kind of on the nose, but to me, that I get chills watching that scene, and it's not really in line with the tone of the show either. It's kind of weird, but... I think it works. So the movie has its moments, but it's kind of hit or miss. You know what? I, I didn't have time to rewatch the movie from when I saw it when I was 13 years old, <laughs> like quite a while ago. Or I guess, yeah, I would have been 13. I checked the air date. But I have distinct memories of that final scene, and I'm so glad that it is exactly what I remember it. Well, that's interesting because for me, I was in a sort of river song silence in the library kind of place with it where i'm watching going oh this is really nice and then I, then i'm thinking wait a second they they specifically say they're not in heaven so they're in sort of maybe like a purgatory state and they're they're going to be there forever 
is strongly implied, and he's just gonna they're just gonna sit there and wait to see who's gonna die next. This seems incredibly depressing. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh yay, you're alive and you're, you'll never die, but you'll never die." You know, I I, I thought it was <laughs> it was so interesting. It was such don't an look odd the way. gift afterlife horse in the mouth, Kate. I mean, there are only so many hands of a five card stud one can play, and that vending machine is eventually gonna run out of ghost food they will eventually run out of coffee so I, I think it's so interesting and i don't i apparently that was the only i was the only one who was noticing that or thinking about that uh and the performances it is very nice to see both Crissetti and uh and Bo back i think that was pretty much the only way they were gonna get them back in a meaningful way uh so i don't really have a problem with it but uh, yeah i was definitely thinking about wait a second yeah i mean it's it's interesting because I didn't think I thought of it as kind of a happy thing because you have Corsetti who died, you know, killed mm-hmm. himself and was depressed and terrible. And then, you know, Felton, who they thought did, but then actually was doing something heroic, but, you know, died in a pretty gruesome way. And you're like, oh, they're happy. They're good. You know, and I guess that's the way I look at it. I mean, the big thing about the chair is that, I mean, the strong implication is that it's Bayless that's going to show up. Wouldn't be a surprise because I think that sort of fits with with where his character is going, which is unfortunate, but that's the show. I think the show is funny and it can be light and it can just be terrible. There's a scene really quick with Kellerman in um, where after he's, you know, basically put through the ringer by the grand jury and then they have the stuff with Luther Mahoney and he's going to kill himself and Meldrick talks him down. And that's a harrowing scene, especially for like a network show at the time. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And uh, that, that is one of those episodes that I, got to it and i remembered that sequence on the boat from when i had watched it previously it's very a very powerful sequence and appropriately played too it starts out very subtly and uh, it's it's well handled so i i I see what you're saying with that last scene and uh and also just with the progression of of bayless it's an it's an interesting it's such an interesting way to leave your lead characters. You uh, you mentioned the network aspect, Dan, and one of the things I find most interesting about Homicide is the style is so different from, I mean, I, I guess the sort of uh, gritty camera work and things like that have become the norm in, in some senses, but then you have these uh, this editing style, which I can't remember seeing really anywhere else on TV where there's frequent, uh, not that frequent, but, you know, once every episode or every two episodes, you'll get a scene that, that features jump cuts and alternate takes, you know, that you're that you're cutting back and forth from that are really out there. But then other aspects do seem a little bit more networky. And I have to say Luther Mahoney is one of them. Uh, he's kind of a scenery chewing villain, at least in the in the episodes that I saw him in that. And I can't, I can't imagine a character like that existing without, you know, sort of network interference, although I could be imagining that. Yeah. And Luther Mahoney, I wanted to bring him up because at the time, I mean, I was I was younger, older than you guys. But, you know, when, and I thought, oh, wow, this I love when he's on the show. This is fun. But, yeah, looking back, it's a little goofy. The interesting thing about that is that the network told them they've got to catch him. He's just getting away. We can't have this this villain who keeps getting away. And so Tom Fontana, I heard an interview, was just like, oh, okay, you want us to get him? Great, we're going to kill him, and we're going to have one of our characters do it in a very suspicious way. So they, again, kind of were like, yeah, the character Luther Mahoney is a little goofy, but I wanted you guys to watch those because when you get to the end of um, Deception, 
when he gets killed, they spend like a season. I mean, that basically that moment brings down Kellerman and subsequently knocks Pembleton out, too. So that I think the character pays off in that way, at least. But, yeah, he's a little a little um, TV ish more than some of the other parts. That just reminds me of the the Battlestar approach to network notes. Oh, you want there to be a happy party? We'll have a, somebody have a birthday and then kill them in the, <laughs> the same sequence. Okay, we can have him get caught. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so so much fun. Yeah, I, we should start wrapping up. But uh, when when you mentioned those uh, those the editing style, Simon, it was very jarring to me as I watched it because at first I. It's very, it's a handheld camera and everything. So at first I wasn't sure if I was just making stuff up. Like, was that actor really in a different position or did I just remember it wrong? You know, because I'm just so used to everybody matching everything all the time. And then I first started noticing when they were driving around on the streets, I was like, okay, well, it's just a reality of they're driving around on actual streets and so they can't help it. And then it finally dawned on me, no, they are intentionally not caring if these scenes, if these cuts match each other. And it's such an, for a show that I do think uh, is is fantastic and may have been very influential on certainly something like The Wire, but also other shows uh, that that can't have come since, I find it very interesting that none of them have decided to try to ape that visual style. Yeah, and um, I think that is something that with the jump cuts and with the showing the same thing three times, mm-hmm. that the network stepped in and said, "Hey, guys." We can't keep Don't doing do this. that. <laughs> but you really notice that in the first, even after the first season, it changed because that was one of the conditions of them getting their big four episode season two. <laughs> but uh, you know, which thanks a lot. But the first season is unique in that way, and also the first season has so many storylines in every episode where that changed too. But the editing, to me, in one sense, it's very. It, I don't know if a show started now and edited like that would really work. But at the time period, I feel like it blew blew me away just because it, it it still looks so different than any other show. The way they shot it with handheld and they shot from all these different angles and they cut things that didn't match. And I think it's an, it was an interesting experiment. I'm not sure it would have carried for seven seasons that way. But Well, and also it's fun to see people, you know, at this point in the 90s trying to play with what television is or can be. I mean, now we're very used to episodes being essentially hour-long, 45-minute-long movies every week with the production quality and and the, the cinematography and all of that stuff. But that was not the case in the 90s, and people were just starting to see the potential of television. I should say some people. Some people would not see that for another 20 years, and some people had already been ahead of the game on that. But there was still this, this notion of what, what are the rules? What are the rules that that we actually care about? And what are the rules that we feel like we can just throw aside and experiment with? And that visual style is clearly one of them. We should, though, wrap up. So before we do so, any final thoughts, favorite episodes or arcs, anything that we haven't mentioned yet that that we want, want to make sure to get in here? Uh, Dan? Yeah, well, first, before I mention the favorite episode, I do want to mention that Homicide premiered after the Super Bowl which to me still amazes me. It seems kind of crazy. but And that shows kind of where NBC was at the time because it was pre-ER and, and they weren't as big. But I do want to mention a few episodes quickly. Three Men and Adina, which I mentioned briefly, it's still considered one of the great TV episodes by throwing basically three people in the box for the whole hour. And we see that a lot with Breaking Bad and some shows now where you do kind of the bottle episodes. But 
it wasn't that common at the time. And I want to mention the documentary, which is a fifth season episode directed by Barbara Koppel, who did Harlan County, USA. And um, it's basically Brody, who's the camera guy, shoots a documentary about them. And it's so, I mean, so meta for that show at the time. But it's just a lot of fun. And I watched it the other day and um, really enjoy that. It's not one of the best episodes, but I think it's kind of a, a very different episode for that show. And also interesting that it was on NBC. Well, and it uh, it features Brody in a way that some of the other episodes don't really, you know, because we see him walking around with the camera, but it's nice to actually see what he's done. And it's pretty good. I like that they don't build up the documentary too big within the reality of the show, but it's nice to see that he actually was doing something, you know, there was a purpose to that camera. And of course, Max Perlich, I, I of course always know him as Whistler in one episode or two episodes of Buffy in a very significant role. <laughs> Uh, but so it was fun to, to get to a better sense of the actor as well. And that's that's a good episode for him. Uh, Simon, any final thoughts? I mean, I'm just looking forward to eventually having the time to go back and watch it all from the beginning, because, again, I just need to emphasize how blown away I am by the personnel involved. I mean, you're looking at the future of dramatic television for the next I mean, up until the present still. And a lot of people involved in film. I mean, just I have to go through the directors really quickly. People like, obviously, Barry Levinson, who was the Cohen's DP for a while and has directed some films, you may have noticed, uh, but also Martin Campbell, Alan Taylor, who's, of course, big on Game of Thrones and other things. Uh, Stephen Gyllenhaal shows up, Tim Hunter. Oh, God, so many more. Peter Medic. Catherine Bigelow directs two episodes. You already mentioned uh, Barbara Koppel. Uh, so many more. Ted Denny, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, in, oh, and Matt Reeves does a season six episode, because why not? And then in the writing crew, you've got, of course, David Simon, but also Henry Brommel, who did all kinds of great work. He wrote The Gas Man here and a, and a few others. Uh, Eric Overmeyer, who ended up running Treme. Uh, lots and lots of incredibly talented people who people at the time wouldn't necessarily know that, the, that a lot of these guys were going to be setting the agenda for TV for basically in perpetuity so far. But they really assembled an incredible crew. Did you mention Tim Babe Hatton? Oh, I didn't, but I should have. There's, Who, of course, there's so many. Is over on board, you're doing Boardwalk Empire now. And uh, just for funsies, Kathy Bates directed an episode as well. So, you know, <laughs> there's all sorts of different, uh, really interesting, and some of the cast, too, as will often ha happen in longer-running shows. Uh, Steve Buscemi, you know. In, in the most obvious guest casting of all time. In the <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. But uh, directing uh, directing one of those season six episodes as well as appearing on the show in this earlier earlier run. Yeah, it's, it's a ridiculous group of creatives involved in all levels of production uh, at Homicide. And yeah, that's the thing where we, we were uh, to let the listeners behind the curtain a little bit. We were, we were going to talk about this uh, a week earlier or so, but we just needed more time to watch more episodes because there are so many of them. And at least the ones that we watched are all so good. It's, it's always hard with the procedural. There may be, there certainly, there have to be dips in quality. I mean, there's a hundred and yeah. what, 20 episodes of the show, 122. Uh, but just the hit to miss ratio, especially in those early seasons is so high. And, uh, I think this is one that would definitely be a great, maybe, um, sort of year-long marathon, just kind of like watch an episode or two a week and eventually have watched the entire series because uh, it, it is just such a reliable and uh, satisfying, satisfying show. So thank you so much for, for 
getting me to watch it, Dan. I would not have caught up with the show, and I'm so glad that oh. I did. I'm glad. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it because, you know, when it's your favorite show, it's always that danger that people are going to say, oh, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing that cuts quite so much as, oh, it's all right. Oh, man. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Where can our listeners find you online? Well, I do do some writing for Sound on Sight, some special, um, I'll do some special writing and then also a recap survivor and also at uh, ptsnob.com where I'm writing about movies and TV. And I've considered doing a weekly episode by episode of Homicide, but I just got to find the time because I think it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I would definitely read it. So, you, sure. just, you know, just tell that baby to stop needing as much time oh, in your man. life. And then Simple. And just be like, baby, stop crying. I need to write about Homicide. I'm pretty sure that's how it works, right? That's how babies work? Yeah, yeah. I think, sure I think it's a good idea. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to talk with us, Dan. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse.